I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. After an unstable early life, a young teenage girl in Manchester, England, finds herself a new group of friends where she felt loved and who she saw as family. But how devastating are the consequences when one person in the group turns on the teenage girl? This is episode 40, The Suzanne Capper Story. Hi, Megan. How's it going? Excellent. How are you? I mean, I'm doing pretty good. Always happy to be recording. (laughs) Yes. So before we begin today's episode, I'd like to note that Amanda Rivera wrote and researched today's episode with just a little bit of help from me. Wonderful. Thank you, Amanda. So before we discuss the case in details, though, let's take a moment to not only thank Amanda, now that we've done that, but to thank our supporters. Today's show is sponsored exclusively by our favorite British streaming service, Acorn TV. We'll be releasing special UK edition episodes of Women in Crime each week in March, presented by Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a streaming service that's rooted in British television. So that is four extra episodes this month, with cases that are all originating from across the pond in the UK, made possible by Acorn TV. This is our first UK episode. The case of Suzanne Capper, which occurred in Manchester, England. Have you heard the name Suzanne Capper before? I have not. That's because probably, um, if you noted in the beginning, this case happened in England. This is not a U.S. case. And I had not heard of it. I don't know if it was um, someone who wrote in and suggested it or if I came across it. But I was thinking about doing this episode and then Amanda put it on her list for me. So I went, yeah, we got to do this one. Suzanne Capper was born in January of 1976 in Manchester, England. In the research, there's really not much mention of her biological father because it was reported that he left her mother, Elizabeth Capper, before Suzanne was born. Suzanne's mother apparently didn't give or show Suzanne much love or support, which is really what made Suzanne look to other people for that kind of attachment. Suzanne had one sibling. She had an older sister named Michelle. 
Those that were close to Suzanne and knew her well described her as a gentle and easily influenced girl, and that all she really wanted in life was just to be loved and accepted. It's already a sad start. It seems like she just didn't have a stable family life and she had to look to other people for that. Suzanne lived with her mother and then later also with her stepfather, John, until she was about 14 years old. And then her mother and her stepfather got divorced. After her mother and stepfather John separated, Suzanne was placed in local government care. And after a while, she left that care and went to live with her stepfather John, um, along with her sister Michelle. According to her stepfather, it was after she moved in with him that she started to skip school on a regular basis. During this time, she began spending a lot more time with 26-year-old Jean Powell. So 26-year-old Jean Powell is Mm -hmm. a neighbor um, for whom Suzanne babysat her children. Gotcha. Again, she did not have a good early life. It seems that, you know, she went to live with her stepfather, but I'm sure there was a strain too. She's not living with her mother. She doesn't have a father figure. There's a lot going on early in her life. And she's an early teenager now at that point. She was. She was about 14 years old at that time. Um, Well, I mean, teenage years anyway are the time where you start rebelling. But I think her rebelling became a little bit worse and she was seeking other friends. And I think she made she made friends as a teenager with a 26 year old. Yeah. I always wonder about you. You wonder about those people, you know, who are like in their 20s and their friends are teenagers because they can't emotionally relate to the people at their own age. Yeah, it doesn't seem natural, normal. It's in general. I don't think it is. Let's talk then about Jean Powell, because she's going to come to play a very big role here. Jean Powell had three children and lived at 97 Langworthy Road, which was only a short walk from Suzanne's home. Jean's home was widely known for being a popular spot for drugs, parties, and sex. According to Suzanne's stepfather, John, he said, I tried to stop Suzanne from going there, but she had a very strong will. John wasn't aware of everything that was happening at Jean Powell's house. But he always said that he had an unsettling feeling regarding those that would frequent the home. He referred to it actually as the house of evil. And I think that is a premonition for what's to come, actually. At some point, Suzanne's sister, Michelle, also lived with Jean for a short period of time. But she moved out in August of 1992 because she didn't like the, quote, evil new friends Powell had been associating with. Mm. Who are we talking about then? Who are these friends? All right, there's going to be a list of characters here. Stop me if you have questions. 24-year-old drug addict Bernadette McNeely had recently moved in a few doors down at 91 Langworthy Road. She had three children, but she would eventually also move in with Jean Powell and her children. We've got Jean and we've got Bernadette. Jean had an ex-husband by the name of Glenn Powell, who she was still friendly with, and he would frequently stop by the home and stay there as well. He was a father of her children? Yes. Mm-hmm. He was... 29 years old, and he had convictions for burglary, theft, drunken disorderly. He was no stranger to law enforcement. Okay, so Bernadette McNeely, the neighbor who had moved in and now has moved in with her, had a boyfriend named Anthony Dudson, who was reportedly 16 years old at the time. I'm sorry? 16? Yes. They're referring to him as a boyfriend. She's statutory rape. To be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest, age of consent in Britain is 16. We consider it statutory Mm -hmm. rape. Different time, but why 24-year-old has a 16-year-old boyfriend, Not you know, it's already a bad sign. Jean Powell also had a boyfriend named Jeffrey Lee, who was 26 years old. And he too had prior convictions and was frequently at Jean Powell's home. One more person. <laughs> Jean had a younger brother named Clifford Pook, who was 18 years old and was also a regular visitor. And reportedly, Clifford was the first person who met Suzanne. 
that's the cast of players, basically. The dynamic that developed was one where Jean, Bernadette, Glenn, Anthony, Clifford, and Jeffrey would all bully Suzanne, essentially, and take advantage of her due to the fact that she would really do anything to be accepted. Like, she wanted to be a part of this group. Yeah, they preyed upon this. This was her weakness. This was her vulnerability. This was, you know, what she wanted. An incident occurred in 1992 when Suzanne went to her mother's home for help after she was beaten up by Jean Powell. Her mother turned her away, claiming that her new boyfriend would not allow Suzanne to stay at the house, which unfortunately then Suzanne returned to Jean's house afterwards, having been rejected by her mother. Mm. I don't know. I mean, this is what I've read as well, although I don't know exactly how this went down. And Suzanne's mother was actually vocal later on, you would come to see about the actions of these people. But this is the way it was reported, and she did actually return to the house. The feeling of abandonment that Suzanne felt is ultimately what led her to search for these feelings in the wrong, you know, wrong places and in the wrong people. And the consequences would be devastating for Suzanne. There's a chain of events that kind of leads to these devastating consequences. So let me describe what happens. In December of 1992, Anthony Dudson had contracted pubic lice and <laughs> had, that's correct, I said pubic lice, um, and so did a, a number of the people in the household. Bernadette McNeely told Dudson that she thought he had caught it from Suzanne because she had also contracted pubic lice, but so did uh, like basically everyone in the house. Dudson and McNeely most likely caught pubic lice because Anthony was having sexual relations with Jean, Bernadette, and Suzanne. Oh, jeez. Yeah. The and how old is Suzanne at this point? She's still young? She was young at this point. Yeah. yeah she was, um, I want to say, like 15 years okay. old. Yeah. No. She's young. Yeah. She's underage, mm -hmm. clearly. And they're all having these sexual relations and sharing partners. Mm. Although, like, Anthony and Bernadette believe they contracted it from, this is where, their logic was bizarre. So they basically believe they contracted it from a bed that Suzanne had slept on, even though they were all sharing sexual relations mm. with each other. The group also accused Suzanne of stealing a pink duffel coat that belonged to Bernadette McNeely. These two incidents are really what led the group to ultimately turn on Suzanne. And again, I think it could have been any event because this group is not, you know, this is definitely a bad group. Mm -hmm. So here's what happened. On December 7th, 1992, Suzanne was coaxed back to Jean Powell's house. She had left. And she was coaxed back under the impression that a guy she liked was at the house waiting to see her. Mm. When she got there, however, she was met with Glenn Powell and Anthony Dudson. The two grabbed her when she got inside the home and held her down while Glenn shaved her head and eyebrows off. What? I mean, this is, you know, I'm not sure if it's like they're thinking hair lice or if this is just a way to shame her. But this is the initial act. They grabbed her. I mean, this gets a lot worse. This this is going to be rough. But after that, Glenn Powell placed a plastic bag over her head, Suzanne's head, and walked her around the house while simultaneously hitting her on like over the head over and over again. She was kicked repeatedly by Jean and Bernadette. And as if that wasn't enough, they also beat her with three foot long wooden spoons. It was a decorative spoon. You would have this hanging on your wall in the kitchen or something. Kind of like those Welsh wedding spoons. You know, the carved spoon that some people just have hanging mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, part of the decor yeah. and a belt. So, uh, you know, they're systematically carrying out a real beating on this, on this girl. After the beating she sustained that day, Jean Powell locked her in a cupboard overnight. What? Yeah, a cupboard. And later on, um, she would say that she did that for Suzanne's protection, <laughs> not because she was cruel. 
On December 8th, the group moved Suzanne to Bernadette McNeely's old house that was actually abandoned and just a few doors down from Jean's house because get this, Jean and Bernadette's children were disturbed and upset by Suzanne's crying all night long. <laughs> oh my God. I, it's, a ca- it's a case and a story that gets more shocking as time goes on. So I guess that she was there. I said just December 7th. So they kept her one night over there. And then they're transporting her, this poor girl that they've beaten, to an abandoned house because, you know, the kids don't want to hear the cries, which probably tells you can or already tells you that things are not over and they're Mm -hmm. going to get worse for Suzanne. Mm -hmm. What happened next spanned over five days and they were awful days for Suzanne. She was like severely tortured and many horrific. Was she sexually assaulted? They did not describe a sexual assault Mm -hmm. at this point. But, I mean, they were gruesome other ways. She was regularly injected by the group, like different members, too, of the group with amphetamines, like drugs, uh, amphetamines. And she was burned on her face and her body with cigarettes. I'm telling you, this is Bernadette and the others also were serious drug users. And they were high Mm -hmm. some of the times, um, or I'm going to assume a lot of the times, to be honest. She was tortured and abused, and while she was being tortured, she was forced to listen to a tape of Chucky repeating, I'm Chucky, want to play? What? Do you remember Child's Play, the horror movie? Okay. So, yeah, through headphones, as well as rave music that they played at maximum volume. Jeez. These people were particularly cruel. At some point during the time of her capture... Uh, Clifford Pook and Jeffrey Lee were called to the house by the rest of the group, and they had seen they saw Suzanne for the first time since the group had kidnapped her. And she was, at this point, blindfolded, gagged, and tied to a bed. So apparently Clifford and Jeffrey were not in on the initial acts. They came later. And that's mm-hmm. kind of important to understand because when I say the group, they weren't all together at every time. And of course, I, I'm sure you're going to see where this is going with different players and characters, and there's going to be finger pointing mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, by this time, when they saw her uh, and when she was tied to the bed, Suzanne had been laying in her own urine and feces for several days. And so they placed her in a bath uh, that contained a concentrated disinfectant, and they scrubbed her with a scrub brush with such excessive force that they removed a lot of the skin from her body. Oh, jeez. And, okay, I'm not, I'm not done. Clifford Pook, I mean, this was her friend, the one who, you know, she initially knew. He took pliers and extracted two of her teeth, which police later found at his house as, as some sort of, they think, trophy so that he wouldn't forget the How events. How old was that one? He was 18. Oh, jeez. I mean, the, where the idea came from to extract her teeth, I have no idea. Again, the police thought it was like a trophy thing to remember the events. Mm. Or just another particularly cruel way to shame her and embarrass her and hurt her. Pook also snapped another of her teeth in another of her one of her teeth in half and left the nerve exposed. And according to Anthony Dudson, who would later wind up talking, Clifford laughed the entire time through the entire process of taking her teeth out and hurting her. Um, the group then came to an agreement that Suzanne had to be removed from the house because Suzanne's sister Michelle was kind of looking for her. And she had inquired, like, where is Suzanne? And she told them that her stepfather was going to report Suzanne missing to the police because they hadn't seen her in five days. And I think Suzanne 
would live with Jean on and off, go back to her father's. Like, I think she bounced in between. So if she was gone for a couple days, maybe, he, you know, they didn't, rep- like, if, if some other 15-year-old was gone for two days, you might report it. But because she was always back and forth, I don't think they reported immediately. After bearing one week of torture, that probably felt like a lifetime to this poor girl. On December 14th, 1992, Suzanne was moved from the home, only to be forced into the trunk of a car that one of the group members had stolen, and they drove 15 miles to basically a remote woodland. It was on the outskirts of Stockport. The group members that were in the car, and this is important, so pay attention, were Bernadette McNeely, Jean, Glenn, and Anthony. They removed Suzanne from the trunk of the car and pushed her down an embankment into a patch of like brambles, which are um, like rough prickly shrubs. She was reportedly semi-naked at this point. Bernadette McNeely then poured gasoline over Suzanne, but she was having trouble getting it to ignite. So Glenn Powell ended up using a lighter to to ignite the gasoline, setting Suzanne up in flames. Assuming that Suzanne was dead, the group drove away laughing and singing, burn, baby, burn. Have you? I mean, these are these are shocking events. As criminologists, I think we find a lot of things shock. I mean, as criminologists, I think we don't find a lot of things shocking. But some of these cases that I've encountered, I'm horrified at like, where's the humanity, right? This and that many people like there's that many monsters that work in tandem. Right. And I think I I really want to talk about that later about the group effect Mm -hmm. and how this comes to happen. But here's what happened. They also stopped on the way back to Gene Powell's house. And they bought alcohol and they went back and started drinking with Jeffrey Lee and Clifford Pook, who were waiting for them at the house. But what they didn't count on was the fact that Suzanne managed to survive the attack. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding you. She was able to make it up the embankment and a quarter of a mile before being found by a man named Barry Sutcliffe and two of his colleagues that they were on their way to work. She made it down the road. Barry and his colleagues managed to get Suzanne to a house that was nearby. It belonged to a a couple who called an ambulance for her. When Suzanne was found, she thanked Barry a million times before muttering, over there in the field, they burnt me. They put petrol on me. It's it's horrible. Due to the suffering from burns, she had 80% burns over her body. Um, Suzanne was placed into a medically induced coma. The extent of her burns were so severe that her mother and stepfather were unable to recognize her. And the only way they were able to identify her was by a partial fingerprint from her thumb. So she survived? Unfortunately, Suzanne was not able to recover from (sighs) her extenuating injuries and died on December 18th, 1992, due to multiple organ failures as a result of her burns. (sighs) But... Not before she was able to name all of her attackers for the police. Amazing. One of the only, I mean, I don't even want to say positive, but Mm -hmm. one of the only things for which I guess I would be grateful is that Mm -hmm. she was able to point out who did this to her. So what happens next after Suzanne dies and names her attackers? There are some arrests coming, as you might imagine, Amy. Inspector Peter Wall was the one in charge of the Suzanne Capper case. And on December 14th, He instructed his officers to go to Gene Powell's home and arrest these perpetrators. Now, initially, all six of the group members denied any involvement in the kidnapping and murder of Suzanne. However, under questioning from the police, Anthony Dudson was urged by his father to come clean about what happened. And he did that. He actually reported everything that happened. Who knows if what he told was the whole truth. Did he have the least amount of... He was one of the lesser culpable people in this scenario. 
He reported everything. He reported all of the members. And on December 17th, 1992, all six of the group members were taken into custody and charged with kidnapping and attempted murder. Because at this time, Suzanne was still alive. Got it. They were later charged with her murder on December 23rd, 1992. There's a trial to follow. There were not guilty pleas here. This was 1992. The trial followed began on November 16th, 1993. So about a year later. Mm -hmm. So it's a short time frame Mm -hmm. and lasted for 22 days. During the trial, the gang began to unravel. They started to turn on each other and deflect the blame from themselves. And obviously, they were trying to minimize their own guilt and maximize Mm -hmm. other people's, which is a common theme in these types of group cases. And it's something we saw when we covered, remember we covered the Shannon Christian Mm -hmm. um, episode? It's the same thing, you know, pointing fingers. What's the strategy? Also, and not surprisingly, all of them distanced themselves from the burning of Suzanne. None of the group members wanting to own up to this horrific act. During the trial, Jean Powell tried to portray herself as an innocent. And she made it seem like she didn't want to participate in the kidnapping or the murder of Suzanne. She said that she sat in her car while the others set Suzanne on fire because she was against it. She stated, I was numb. I was so scared. Jean also claimed that she had locked, again, locked. So they took the stand? Yes, some of them took the stand. Jean also claimed that she had locked Suzanne in the cupboard for her own safety and that she loved her as a sister, <laughs> adding that she can't stand violence. I don't even smack my own children. Oh, jeez. Were, these were her claims on the stand. Bernadette McNeely claimed that she had held the canister of gasoline but said that it was Anthony Dudson that grabbed it from her before Suzanne went up in flames, even though this wasn't really true. They're contradicting each other at this point. She also claimed that she had injected Suzanne with amphetamines to protect her. Get this, to protect her from being injected with heroin instead, because that was the original plan. Anthony Dudson told the court that Glenn had been the one to set Suzanne on fire. So essentially, we have a trial where all the perpetrators have been identified and they're just trying to minimize their roles. The medical evidence was pretty clear and the involvement of these people was not in question how would this work out with everyone pointing the finger at each other? I mean, what do you think the outcome of their, their trials are going to be? All guilty. Okay. Well, let's talk about it. You are right. There are convictions coming down the line here. But I'm not sure that the convictions and the outcome are exactly what I would have thought. And we can talk about that too. On November 24th, 1993, Clifford Pook, he was cleared of murder, but he pled guilty to conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm and false imprisonment. He's the one who was at the home. He wasn't at the scene of the fire. Correct. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Justice Potts, the judge on the case, found Jean Powell, Bernadette McNeely, and Glenn Powell guilty of murder, guilty of false imprisonment, and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm. And they were sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years. Jeffrey Lee was acquitted of murder and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, but pled guilty to false imprisonment and was sentenced to 12 years. Anthony Dodd was found guilty of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, false imprisonment, and murder, but he was detained indefinitely with a minimum of him having to serve 18 years. Indefinitely? Doesn't that mean life without parole? Anthony Dodson was essentially sentenced to life, but with a minimum of 18 years. Okay, got it. Here's what happened. There was appeals and then there's releases. So I want to talk briefly about this. Jeffrey Lee appealed his sentence and got it reduced from 12 years to nine years in November 1994. It's very short to me. In 2002, Dodson's minimum sentence was cut from 18 to 16 years. 
And in June of 2012, Bernadette McNeely's sentence was reduced by one year, which didn't make much of a difference. Jeffrey Lee was released early in 1998 after serving five out of his 12-year sentence. Five years. Awful. Yeah. Then Pook was released after serving eight years in 2001, or or close to eight years. It might have been between seven and eight. Bernadette McNeely was released from prison in December of 2014, Mm. which means she served about 20 years in prison. Uh, Jean and Glenn Powell, along with Anthony Dudson, remain in prison to this day. Half of the members got out and half of them are in prison. I mean, it's upsetting. It's disturbing on like serious levels. I want to get to our thoughts, but first I want to start with how do we how do we explain how this happened? How six people could come together and torture a girl and no one had an attack of conscience or wanted to stop or there was no indication that there was anyone in the group who, you know, ever said this is wrong, we shouldn't do this, nothing. There was a lot of discussion in the the media around this crime and the underclass that was created in this area where they live due to like lack of social programs for the poor. And I'm, I'm certain that that's true. And I'm certain that these individuals, some of them faced serious lack of opportunities mm-hmm. and strain. But I don't think that lack of opportunity and, and strain is enough to explain the, gr- the gruesomeness of this crime, you know, I don't think or the brutality here. Also, if you're going to claim that it has to do with their social standing, this crime was not financially motivated either. No, no. A lot of times we are talking yeah. about crimes of the underclass. Mm-hmm. They're crimes of survival. Yeah. This crime is a crime of gratuitous violence. Disgusting. Was there a ringleader? There are definitely some who didn't play as much of a role, but. I actually think that Bernadette was a ringleader. Mm-hmm. And I think- that, Was she the oldest? Sorry. Um, no. So the oldest was, Dutton was young. It was Glenn Powell who was the oldest. He was 29. So I'm going to say that Bernadette, Glenn, and Jean Powell, those three were the probably the leaders. They are the three that are still incarcerated. Oh, good. Though I want to say, I think Bernadette McNeely was a ringleader too. And she was released after 20 years. She seemed to be one of the main instigators of this crime. And she was involved in every aspect of the torture of the And she's still killing. quite young. Yeah, no, she's, I mean, so it was 20 years. She was in her late 20s. So yeah. she's, yeah, she's, she's I'm probably. sorry, that's considered young in my book. <laughs> no, she's probably, um, because my math is off, yeah. she's probably, I think when I, I, when I read like the update and the release, I think I read she's 50 now. Okay. Uh, but she was released in her 40s. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was they minimized this crime, mm-hmm. I have to say. I think that I even think the media minimized this. Um, I think most of the people in this house demonstrated real antisocial traits in terms mm-hmm. of their lack of sympathy, their parasitic lifestyles, mm-hmm. um, backgrounds of criminal history, lying, poor social relationships, promiscuity, irresponsibility, lack of long-term planning. But I think there's more than one dimension, and that is the group mentality or mob mentality, which Mm -hmm. we really haven't discussed before. I think in this case, it was one of the, or one or more of the group members, as you asked about the leaders, trying to also impress another. Mm -hmm. And I think the excitement of this, and I think that the excitement is how the violence escalates. Um, One person does one thing and another urges them like, oh yeah, you know, kind of it's like almost like um, positive reinforcement. Thank you. Um, that's what I'm thinking mm-hmm. of. So when we talk about learning theory, differential reinforcement theory, we talk about differential reinforcement. What's differential reinforcement, Amy, for those who don't know? Simply put, 
behaviors that are positively reinforced will be more likely to continue versus behaviors that are negatively reinforced. Right. So I think that they're, everyone in the group, I think they were reinforcing each other and one-upping each other to mm-hmm. also impress each other. Yep. No one's going to play chicken here. And I think this is how some of the violence escalates. They were also under the influence of drugs. And that's there's another dimension here. Drugs mm-hmm. are never an, uh, you know, enough mm-hmm. to... Um, what kind of drugs do you know? Is it meth? or Yes, yeah, and ev- okay. like other drugs. Okay. They, had se- they, had her- they had heroin. Yeah. They had meth. They were drinking. I mean, these people were habitual drug users and alcoholics. And think about all the indirect victims. Didn't two of the women have three kids each? Yes, they had six children. And I think one of the other males had children as well, just so you know. Yeah, so we have... I mean, we have six children. We have tons of, yeah, I think that's a good point too. Um, I also think when a group is perpetrating this type of act that individuals feel safer or less responsible because they aren't the only ones doing it. And I think because they're not the only ones doing it, they can lessen the culpability. Mm -hmm. I think this is a clear case of mob mentality, um, which I do not believe diminishes culpability at all here, but I don't know how to explain it. Are you thinking... Are there any other, uh, this is the way I'm explaining it. And when we're looking at it through the criminological lens is I think you have a number of antisocial mm-hmm. human beings here mm-hmm. who have serious traits of violence. And I would say a lot of them have all, you know, antisocial traits. They come together. You know, there only had to be one trigger event for these people because mm-hmm. they were probably set up for this. Um, they start initiating this horrible act and then they feed off of each other i think through reinforcement mm-hmm. they're reinforcing each other's behavior they're lessening or minimizing their own culpability until the act itself is done yeah. i don't know if there's another way can you think of any other theories no, I mean, here without knowing the full background on each of the actors it's really hard for us to think of individual theories that could help explain we know in general what they look like but we don't know specifics i think the mob mentality is just so fascinating. We saw this with Shanda Scherer's case as well. We did. We talked, which was also my case. These are hard cases, I have to say, yeah. but they have impo- they raise important questions, though. I mean, so, the fact that most of these individuals got released with the whole life to live still. Yeah, half of them. And I mean, in Shanda Scherer's case, we covered it too. Mm-hmm. If you I remember, remember two of them got out very early and then yeah. the other two got released in their early 40s, which I said was not appropriate because yeah. I want people to be older. And I want them to be aged out of crime. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be the case with all of them. So let's turn to the outcome, the the criminal justice response. I'm pleased that the three ringleaders, three of the four ringleaders in my uh, version, are still incarcerated. I'm surprised because the UK system is usually not as punitive as we are. So I'm surprised that these three, I'm happy. Well, but but, but they could be out. They had a minimum of like 25 years, so they could get out too very soon. And I suspect, if I had a guess, I suspect they will. I don't think they're going to be made to serve life. They would if they were in our country. Absolutely. I mean, we're more punitive. But I think life for these people would be appropriate. I mean, do you think that's appropriate for their crime? You know how I feel about life sentences. Um, No, for violent... I think... I would want to know crimes that are adults. I would want to know what they're what they've been doing for the last twenty five years, oh. and is there any sense of remorse or rehabilitation? Amy, I'm, not, I'm just going to disagree I, with I you know, outright I'm, on this one. I think it's as heinous as it could get, but some of them were quite young, and I, you know, how I feel about redemption. None of, the, none of them were children, though. None of the, the younger ones are the ones that got out oh, earlier. Okay. None of them were kids; they were in their twenties. They okay. were adults. Yeah, fully adults. Yeah. 
No, you still... I don't know. It's a hard one because obviously the victim in this case is just so brutal what they did. I can't excuse the brutality. I can agree with you. We've agreed on this. I don't think everyone needs to serve a life sentence for every murder, but this crime warrants life for me for these three. Mm-hmm. And I'm not pleased that Bernadette McNeely got out I after agree. 20 years. Um, she was still, like you said, young enough and still young enough to have a life. Mm-hmm. And people have... It's funny, I read something. Um, some neighbor was having a dispute with her in some way. Like, you know, she's out like living. I'm not sure she's living her best life. Mm-hmm. I also think uh, Lee being released after five years. No, that's way too, way too early. Short. Come yeah. on. He participated. So in this. of the three who got released, anyone back in the system or as far as you found, they're all. Living? I didn't see anyone back in the system, but that doesn't mean of that course. they that they mm-hmm. weren't. I mean, also, Pook was released early. He was young. He was 18. But can, can I remind you again? He removed Suzanne's teeth Ugh. with pliers. Ugh. So, I mean, okay. And he served only how many years? Eight or something, right? That's the one. He was the one who served, yeah, about eight years. And while he's young, I what kind of person, what motivates you to do that, um, getting out at young? So I'm going to be satisfied if the others stay in prison for life. Mm-hmm. I think that's where they deserve, uh, what they deserve. I Obviously, you might be you might allow for them to get out after 25 years or so. Depending on each individual circumstance. I'm not happy that the other ones got off so lightly. Um, I think about the cases that we've covered, and I, I, I agree. In the U.S., I think that we would have been more punitive on them. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the case for which we should have been more punitive. Yep. This is a really hard case, and actually it was really hard. My student like wrote this. I went over and we went, oh, my goodness, this is really horrific. I guess the only positive note I can end on is I hope the people who have been released from prison took that second opportunity and made something better of their lives. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they don't ever commit this type of crime again. Yep. Well, thank you, Megan, for bringing the special case today. We'd also like to thank Acorn TV for sponsoring this special UK edition of Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode come from The Independent, Screen Rant, Medium.com, and The Confidentials. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.